بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم We are in Surah Al-Ahzab, Surah number 33, and Ayah number 9, inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا اذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذْ جَاءَتْكُمْ جُنُودًا إِذْ جَاءَتْكُمْ جُنُودٌ فَأَرْسَلْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ رِيحًا وَجُنُودًا لَمْ تَرَوْهَا وَكَانَ اللَّهُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ بَصِيرًا إِذْ جَاءُوكُمْ مِنْ فَوْقِكُمْ وَمِنْ أَسْفَلَ مِنْكُمْ وَإِذْ زَاغَتِ الْأَبْصَارُ وَبَلَغَتِ الْقُلُوبُ الْحَنَاجِرَ وَتَظُنُّونَ بِاللَّهِ الظُّنُونَ هنالك ابتلي المؤمنون وزلزلوا زلزالا شديدا. This surah is known as Surah Al-Ahzab, the surah of the confederates, the clans, the groups or the tribes that came together and attacked Medina in the fifth year Hijri of the Prophet this uh, passage in the Quran gives us a general overview of what happened in the battle of the Ahzab Ghazwat al-Ahzab which is more commonly known as Ghazwa khandaq the battle of the trench This passage has uh, emphasized to Muslims who want to understand Islam only through the Quran that they can't do that. Some people say, let's just follow the Quran and not follow Hadith. So what is hadith? Hadith are the statements of the Prophet And since he's human and we're also human, we should not rely too much and too heavily on the hadith. We should rely only on the Quran. That he is a Nabi, yes, but the statements that come from him they're not as authentic as the statements that come from the Qur'an. Which is a false premise to begin with, because the way we know this is the Qur'an is the same way we know this is the Hadith. The methodology is exactly the same. Number one. Number two, in order to understand the meanings of these ayat, there's only one way, which is to understand what happened in the battle. Because the Qur'an doesn't give you the details of the battle. Who gives you the details of the battle? Hadith. You say it's a seerah. You say, well, what is seerah if it's not hadith? Right. So before we start discussing this, we must refer to the aqidah in Islam that any sound tradition that is proven to be sound in the chain of narrators and has been accepted by the early ulama of the ummah to be sound, those statements are equally based on wahi, as is the Qur'an, except the difference is we know categorically, conclusively, that this is the Qur'an, and we recite it, and we know categorically, conclusive, this hadith is not the Qur'an, and therefore we don't recite it. But other than that, you have no recourse to understanding these ayat except through hadith. Except through the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, which are all narrated through the process of hadith narration. Number one. Number two, that before we understand what happened at the battle of the Khandaq or the ditch, 
for the Ahzab, the Battle of the Confederates. You must understand that the, the Prophet ﷺ, when he came to Medina, had a pact and a treaty with all the local communities, such as the Aus and the Khazraj, who were the primary tribes of the Ansar. They were the Ansari tribes, they believed in the Prophet and he also had a treaty with the Jewish tribes, Banu Nadir, Banu Qaynuqa, and the other one, Banu Qurayza. Banu Qurayza is going to be discussed at the end, because immediately after this battle, the Prophet engaged in another battle with the Banu Qurayza, which we will highlight. When we get there. Okay. So what happened was that they, they agreed that they will not hurt the Prophet and they wrote a treaty in which they said that they will support the Prophet and they will defend Medina if any outside force comes to attack Medina. As it happened, Banu Nadir sent a delegation to the Quraysh in Mecca and inside of the Haram of Mecca, in front of the Kaaba, they told the Quraysh, and they formed another uh, party, that uh, the Quraysh should attack Muhammad Sallallahu in Medina. They, they had this treaty in the Haram. The Quraysh said, in order to attack Muhammad Sallallahu we will now need the assistance of another tribe, and they went out and they sought the assistance of Banu Ghutfan and then a few other tribes, Banu Aslam, Banu Asjar, and Kanana and others, Banu Dharra. And they all came and they gathered and they said that this is time we totally annihilated the Muslims in Medina and this is what they set out to do. So 12,000, 12,000 okay, people in the form of soldiers, came to attack Medina. 12,000. And in Medina, the number of Muslims were 3,000. So that's why it's called the Ahzab, the groups, the tribal groups, the confederates. And this is a proof that the Prophet ﷺ did not take any offensive to attack others. All of his fights barring one, uh, was uh, a defensive measure where Uhad, who was outside of Medina, as you know, you go and you see Uhad. When you go to Ziyarat in Medina, you go, it's right there, you can walk it there. Okay. Then the Khandakh, when you go to Ziyarat, you see the Khandakh, the ditch, in places where they built the ditch. This is also outside of Medina. So, 12,000 people attacking, 3,000 people in Medina, in the Medina, the Prophet reminded the Banu Nadir, the Banu Khurayla, that they still had their treaty and the pact with the Muslims, and they should not uh, side with the Hazab. And also, he had to deal with the Munafiqun, another group who claimed they were Muslim, but they were not. And they also showed their true colors in this battle. So now, when the news came to the Prophet, uh, there was a discussion. How do we protect ourselves from this horde of 12,000 people? There's no way we can do this. And so, as the conversations and the discussions went back and forth, Salman Farsi, who came from Persia, he is the one, as you know, suggested that they did a ditch. So the Prophet decided, okay, let's now dig a ditch around Medina. So, three and a half miles. Yeah. Three and a half miles of a ditch was dug in seven days by these people without any technology in the harsh terrain of the rocky desert. And how they did that, only Allah knows. Yeah. At one point, there was a portion of the ditch which was um, very, very difficult to dig. And uh, there was 
a discussion as to whether they should reroute and reroute the ditch away from the diagram of the Prophet Sallallahu he, he drew he drew a diagram and he showed them, this is how you're going to do where you're going to do so that particular terrain was too hard so the Prophet Sallallahu came and then through his Mubarak hands he used the pickaxe uh, to strike the rocks and the first strike okay, removed one third and Salman radiallahu anhu was there he saw that there was light coming out from the dust as he struck then he struck a second time and then it removed two thirds and Salman says I saw another light come out nur and then the third strike uh, the whole rock and the boulder was totally decimated and Salman says I saw for the third time nur coming out so as they're discussing Salman asked the Prophet that when you were doing this nur came out and I saw it so the Prophet said are you sure you saw nur or something else and now it was nur <laughs> so because Salman asked the question and he saw uh, through his observation the Prophet said look when I struck the first time Okay, I saw the the homes and the buildings of Yemen. And Jibreel came and said to me, Your Ummah will be ruling this place. The second time uh, I struck, the Nur came and I saw all the buildings and the homes of the, the Romans in the Byzantine. And Jibreel said that, your Ummah will also rule this. Then the third time I saw the Persian palaces and Jibril said that your Ummah will also rule this place. This fifth year of Hijrah where they barely have 3,000 people and half of the peninsula is coming to attack them. They have no food they're almost starving to death. The Prophet Sassim and the Sahaba, which is another story we now tell you. They have no weapons. And Jibreel is coming to the Prophet Sassim and saying, you are going to extend your rule here, here, and here. And the Prophet Sassim is asking the Sahaba to believe and everyone else to believe. Can you imagine that? We would say today, here, yeah, right. Right. That this is the background to these ayat. Now, where is this background? It's not in the Quran. But everybody in the Muslim who are scholars say this. this is what happened. So you say, well, the scholars are lying, or the Quran is lying. One of the two. It can be both, if you're Muslim. Right? So we're saying that in order to understand the Quran, you must have a reservoir of knowledge from the Hadith. If you don't have Hadith knowledge, you cannot understand the Qur'an by simply reading the text of the Qur'an. So now understand, no you don't. And this story proves it. That the Sahaba went through this, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to a specific incident during his time, which is recorded by Hadith narration. And this is the beginning of this story. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amarathkuru ni'matullah alaykum if jaaatkum junoodu farsalna alayhim rihaan wa junoodu lam taruha wa kana allahu ima ta'amaloo O you who believe, remember and mention Allah's ni'mah on you, Allah's favor on you when when an army came to you, an army came to you, and then we sent upon them wind and an army that you did not see. Allah definitely was always uh, knowing what you were, always seeing what you were doing. This is when the battle began, and the Quraysh and the Banuqatfan and others came. And they saw the ditch, they could not cross the ditch because this strategy was very new. It was unheard of in Arabia at that time because it was 
a strategy that was used by the Persians in their warfare. So they, they, they couldn't cross the ditch, so they had to camp outside of Medina. And it took a long, long while. The siege was lasted for a good few weeks. And then eventually, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent a storm, a sandstorm, meaning the wind, and uprooted their, their tents and drove away their camels and their horses and everything else. And that's how they were defeated. So this ayah speaks about this wind, Allah's ni'mah, and also the angels that accompanied uh, the Muslims during the fight is also mentioned. An army that you did not see. The Sahaba did not see them. They might have seen or heard their horses or whatever. But they did not see the angels in this battle. That when they came to you from above you, from the north and from underneath you, from the south. And when with Zaqad al-Absar, and when the eyes of the believers were now swerving out of fear, if you want to make that statement, that's fine. And their hearts reached their throats, meaning they were apprehensive that 12,000 people are marching into Medina, and now we will be decimated and we'll be killed. And then they had thoughts regarding Allah. It is perfectly normal to have these thoughts. Nothing wrong with it. It's a time of panic and fear and apprehension. You as a human being, okay, if you have these thoughts, it's perfectly normal. There's nothing wrong with it. If you're, God forbid, chased by a lion, how should you feel? Very happy? Or should you be afraid? You should be afraid. That's what you should do as a human being. So now, the, the, the enemy is there, the threat is imminent, and the danger is very real. So this is how now believers are believing what's going to happen to us. So they're, they're naturally apprehensive. It is there that all the believers were tried and tested. The Quran affirms this test, that you were tested. So, with your fear, you remained believers. And you were shaken. Very, very severely. Your roots were shaken, your foundations were shaken. Meaning your belief and your belief system, your values and your value system, and everything that you believed in, sacrificed for, and stood for, was now shaken by these people who were about to just destroy you. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this, that this is also a favor. Right? The continuation of the first ayah we started. This is a favor from Allah that Allah tested you and you showed your worth and you proved yourselves to be Muslim and believers even though you were going through the test of fear and apprehension and all of the other thoughts that came to you. Being that if you do, if you do face trials and tribulations, we ask Allah for his comfort and his afiyah, then it's okay. That doesn't mean to say you give up your deen, or you give up your values, or you give up your faith because you've been tried and tested and you're afraid. It is normal to be afraid. Right? Like we were afraid of 9-11. That's normal. Nothing wrong with it. For those whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected, uh, may Allah protects all forever, we remain Muslim. Right? You're proof you're here. You still go to Jummah. You still do your Salat. You still give your Zakat. You still fast in Ramadan. You still go for Hajj and Umrah. This is a proof that although you were afraid and you were tested and you were shaken, uh, Allah kept you as a believer. This is Allah's fadl. This is the ni'mah that Allah is now mentioning to the Sahaba that uh, you were shaken but you remained Muslim. Your Iman was intact. You don't give up your Islam because you are afraid. You should consolidate your iman in Islam. This what happens. When you believe in Allah, this is what happens. Those who did not keep their faith, or those who pretended they were believers, they are the munafiqun. So one group Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commends, 
that despite being tested and shaken from their roots, they remain Muslim. And the other group who truly didn't believe in the first place, the munafiqoon. وَإِذَا قُولُ الْمُنَافِقُونَ وَالَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ مَا وَعَدْنَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ إِلَّا قُرُورًا And also remember the time, or remember the favor of Allah upon you, when Allah exposed the munafiqoon, those who are hypocrites and truly do not believe, that the munafiqoon said, and those in whose hearts there is sickness, a disease. What did they say? That Allah and His Rasul have promised us nothing except deception and a delusion. So false. It's not going to happen. Referring to the story of the boulder being shattered by the Prophet and the nur coming out after which he told the Sahaba that you will be ruling the Persians, the Byzantines and people in Yemen. So the Munafiqun said, hey, that's not happening. This is false promises. He's not a prophet. He is now lying. He is now uh, stretching the issue. No. You don't have food in your houses, as you'll see. You don't have food in your houses. Your houses are exposed. The enemy is going to come into your houses and kill you and your family and your children. And you're giving false promises of going outside of Arabia and spreading the word and the deen. So the munafiqun now said this. And those in whose hearts there was disease, they said this. So they not only panicked, they succumbed to the pressures of society and the pressures of the test. And they failed miserably to the degree and extent that Allah calls them al-munafiqun. The hypocrites. Islam is false. Islam promises nothing. Well, the first thing you have to remember that the only thing Islam promises you is Jannah after you die. That is why you're Muslim. Why are you Muslim in the first place? Are you a Muslim because Islam promises that a Muslim will be in the White House? Maybe he will, maybe he won't. And who cares? Is that why you're Muslim? Are you Muslim because Allah promises you if you believe me and you do this then I will give you Jannah. That's why you're Muslim. So the only promise you need to believe in is the promise of salvation and Jannah. The reason why you're Muslim. If there's any worldly promise that you hang on to in the name of Islam then that worldly promise is not guaranteed. It has never been guaranteed. The Prophet never promised people that if you become Muslim, we'll give you a good job. We'll give you food. We'll make sure that nobody remains, uh, what, abused in the whole world. Was that his pitch? No. He did say that if there's injustice, then make sure you work against it. And you stand up against it. And you try to get justice for people. And so he did say that. He did say that there should be no abuse in the household and treat people fairly and, and with ihsan and dignity and so on. But he didn't say that God's promise is that once you are Muslim, the whole world will change and there will be no injustice on the face of the planet. Did he say that? If he said that, then Muslim history is what? Laden and burdened with what? So many crimes and so many injustices, and so many wars, and so many deaths, and so many uh, uh, forms of slaughter. Early Muslim history, the first hundred years. Meaning that the Sahaba and the Tabi'un understood that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised to us is salvation. Not political justice, or social justice, or that there will be food in abundance for everybody in the world. During the time of Omar was there not a severe drought? I mean, have you forgotten that part of Umar's seerah? Everybody said Umar was great and his seerah is Mubarak. Okay, there was a time when there was no food in Medina. There was a time when there was no rain in Medina. There was a time when people were stealing food from each other's homes in Medina 
And Umar radiallahu anhu said, I'm not going to levy the head or the punishment because these are very, very dire times. Now, where does that part of Umar's seerah figure in the grand story of Umar? You say Islam is the best. The best in what terms? In which terms? Best in the sense that you will be promised Jannah. And when does that happen? When you die. Does it happen here? No. So the munafiq is only looking to what? Worldly gains. Glory in the dunya. So here the Quran mentions this, that at the time of Khandaq and the Ghazwa of the Hazab, there were two groups, three groups of people. The first were the believers who were shaken from their foundations, but they survived the test and they remained Muslim. The second are these people who were munafiqun. They truly did not believe in Allah and His Rasul, nor in the validity of Islam, and they said as much. مَا وَعَادَنَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ This all deception, these all fantasies, and these all now fake made-up stories, and he's just exploiting you and your fear and your concerns in such a way that all he wants is leadership. وَإِذْ قَالَتْ طَائِفَةٌ مِّنْهُمْ يَا أَهْلَ يَفْرِبَ لَا مُقَامَ لَكُمْ فَرْجِعُوا وَيَسْتَأْذِنُ فَرِيقٌ مِّنْهُمْ النَّبِيَّ يَقُولُونَ إِنَّ بُيُوتَنَا عَوْرَةٌ وَمَا هِيَ بِعَوْرَةٍ إِنْ يُرِيدُونَ إِلَّا فِرَارًا Another group of people from the Munafiqun, another party of the Munafiqun, that there was a group from them, meaning the Munafiqun, that addressed the people of Medina. يَا أَهْلَ يَثْرِبُ Oh people of Yathrib, meaning Medina as you know was called Yathrib before. The Prophet ﷺ changed the name to Al-Madinatul Munawwara. Madinatul Nabi ﷺ. O people of Yathrab, la muqama lakum. There's no place for you to stand here today and remain and survive the onslaught of these hordes that are coming to attack you and kill you. Farji'u. So you must go back home. And then they sought permission from the Prophet ﷺ. What did they say as an excuse, a pretext? That when you seek permission from the Prophet ﷺ to leave the battlefield and to leave the ditch, then you must say that our homes are being exposed from the other side. Okay, so the ditch is on the north and the east, and they're going to come from the south and the west, and now our homes are exposed to danger and to whatever the enemy is going to do with us. Allah says they are not at all exposed, they couldn't enter from the other side. All they want to do is now run away and flee. Once you have made a verbal and physical commitment to defend yourselves against the oppressor, against the tyrant, against any invader, then you do not leave your position and you do not flee from the battlefield because the Prophet said this is one of the seven most hated sins and crimes in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, al-firaru min al-zahr, that you leave the battlefield because that exposes your cowardice. That exposes your weakness. Muslims, or for that matter, any civilization that has any sense of defense, they do not like traitors and deserters. What is the punishment for a deserter in the army? You're court-martialed, and you're branded, and you're ousted, and you no longer figure in the community, the society, or even in the government or anywhere. You're a total now, loser. So the Prophet said this to the Sahaba also, that al-firar min al-zahaf, fleeing the battlefield is something that is despicable and he will not be tolerated by the Muslim community. And this is what these munafiqun wanted all the Muslims to do, to leave the battlefield, leave their positions, and uh, let the front be exposed rather than their homes be exposed.
in Medina. Yeah. This is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this wahi to us, that this is also a ni'mah. It's a ni'mah because it exposes those who are traitors. As the lawyer says, saying, saying goes, yeah? And that when you are tested, you'll either be honored or you will be disgraced. If you fail, you're disgraced. And if you now pass the test, you're honored. And these people are disgraced. And this is a favor Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning to the believers that when you are with the Prophet, وسلم, if you are with him at all times, you are favored. And this shows the rank of the Sahaba in the eyes of Allah, in the eyes of the Prophet And those who chose to leave the Prophet they were disgraced, and they're still being disgraced, and we still read about them, and we still read them with contempt. Even today, as we're reading this ayat, we're not very happy with them at all. This is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes care of those who are traitors in the ummah. You don't do this for any uh, campaign. Why are you doing this? When you are with the Rasul sallallahu alayhi Had they been overrun from the quarters of the city? Meaning had the enemy approached the people of Yathrib from the other side and entered the uh, town or the city and if they then were asked about the break, meaning the fitna and the test and the trial, what would they have done? They would have then broken that treaty also, and they would have failed to pass the test. And they would not, they would have lived there or stayed there only for a short while, and they would have surrendered to the enemy. Meaning that a person who's, who's a coward, okay, he dies twice. Cowards die twice. A brave man doesn't die, and a coward dies twice. This is what this eye is referring to, that had they done this, and if the enemy came there, they would have done the same thing. They would have deserted you even there. So now, here, um, in the context of, of trying to uh, understand Islam, now, uh, today, especially in the West, as, as some of you, if not most of you, are still grappling with the idea of Islam and jihad. Right? Hmm. What is this jihad you're talking about? The Quran is mentioning Surah Hazab, and the Quran is now discussing these fights that the Prophet had, and violence, and destruction, and all of this. The point is that when you want to develop a social order, and you want to promote a civil society through a civilization, you will always need checks and balances, like this country, and any other country in the world that has a military, that has an army, that has a defense agenda, and so on. We believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala endowed the Prophet with so many skill sets through wahi and more than that he gave them the best companions the best supporters those companions are the, the muhajirun and the ansar and this is very evident during the battle so the prophet often organized the battlefield or the defense that one person was in charge of the muhajirun Zaid bin Haritha and another person from the ansar was in charge of the Ansar, and that was Jabir. So now, under his command, there were two other lieutenants or uh, deputies, and the Sahaba did not see that as a threat to the unity of the Ummah. If we were reporters then, uh, and we had a little sense of journalism, and you saw a slogan, Muslims, MashaAllah, slogan, loving Muslims, that you have two leaders, one leader for the Muhajir and one leader for the Ansar. Where is the Prophet? Is there something wrong with this picture? No? 
They didn't see it. Now, you're not seeing it, which is good. <laughs> see, you're not jealous. Which is also good. No? Slogan Islam means that you have a unified and a united ummah where everyone is under the banner of one leader who is Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But this one leader, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, apparently divided the ummah even there. That these are muhajir and these are ansar. Does it make any sense to you? Sure it does. It's called appointing deputies. You deputize people to do the work for you. It's facilitating the affair, the amr. In, 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 when you have leadership, then leadership recognizes that the best way to organize this is to control everything that is within your control. So the Sahaba, Umar and Abu Bakr, who were from the Muhajirun, didn't go to the Prophet and say that we are the Muhajirun and we have rights over the Ansar and we should be their leader also. And the Ansar didn't say that we are the Ansar and we have rights over the Muhajirun also. And therefore, this is no good leadership. Why is it important? It will come up, it will come up again in the theme of the surah. Right? So this is a favor from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that the believers, who are the believers? The Mahajirun and the Ansar. And in between you had Sunman Farsi as the catalyst. Right? He, was, he, was, he was not even from Arabia. He was Persian. And you keep the ummah together. It was the Persian who gave the suggestion that we should do this. And the Muhajir and the Ansar didn't say, oh, he's an Arab. Therefore, why taking the opinion of an Arab over the opinion of the Arab? We know our land and terrain. We know how the Quraysh works. We know how Banu Qutfan works. Why are you taking the opinion of a Farsi over an Arab? What is this Islam? They didn't do that. What I'm saying is that through the seerah, when you understand these ayat, you see the glory of the Prophet ﷺ, where his ability to keep the ummah united is a mu'ajizah. It's a mu'ajizah. We can do it. You know, if you had a committee here, I want to be this, I want to be that. It doesn't work with slogan Islam. It only works under Nabuwa. And that is the point. That Islam resides on the back of Nabuwa, not on the back of politics, siyasa. So the Sahaba was successful in this battle and other battles with the Prophet ﷺ because their leader is a Nabi, not a king, not a ruler, not a president, not a prime minister. So if you have Nabuwa, over you, then you will remain an ummah. If you remove Nabuwa, then you will not remain an ummah. You will become divided into factions and splinter groups and this sectarian, this sectarian. And then the rest is all history. But what is the Quran doing here? It is dividing or it is separating those who are hypocrites and traitors from those who are true believers True believers will take the test, but they won't run away. False believers will take the test and then they run away at the time of the test. And this is the challenge for Muslims of today, that it is not about uh, the, the case of saying that uh, Muslims are allowed to defend themselves, because that's very apologetic. It is not a principled argument. It's a very reactionary approach. Oh, yeah, yeah, we, we also need our defense. No. It's about doing what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to do in such a way that we follow the Prophet It is about the Prophet that we are studying, discussing this surah. This surah, all of it, is about the Prophet. What is the first word on this surah? You go back. You have a look in the, in the text. The first surah. First word. What's the first address? Ya ayyuhun nabi. Means, this means what? This surah is about the nabi. And only the nabi. And is about those who are with the nabi. And is about those who are not with the nabi. Both. Right? So meaning, 
that if you want to understand what Islam represents, then you must say Islam represents the Prophet Muhammad Period. Underneath that, you can have your flowery language. Love, peace, justice, social justice, political this, this, kalal, kalal. That's all in the prophethood. It is not without nabuwa. It is underneath the rubric of the Prophet Muhammad So whatever the Prophet did through wahi is correct. It is aqeedah. As you will see in the other stories that are coming in the surah. And that is the point of the whole surah. وَلَقَدْ كَانُوا عَاهَدُ اللَّهِ مِنْ قَبْلُهِ لَا يُوَلُّونَ الْأَدْبَارُ وَكَانَ عَهْدُ اللَّهِ And indeed, previously, they had already made an agreement that they will not turn away their backs. They won't turn away in retreat. Which is the treaty I referred to in the beginning of my summary and introduction. That these people had already uh, sworn to the Prophet ﷺ that they would help him and assist him if there was a common enemy coming to destroy Medina and his people. At the same time, they must also remember that the Ahad and the Pact of Allah is a responsible duty upon them and they will be asked about it. Mas'ula. They will be questioned about it and this is part of the nature of human affairs and what's called treaties. Now, if you make a treaty and you sign an agreement with people, either as an individual or as a company or as a nation, those treaties have to be honored. A breach of that is, 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 is called what? Deception and being a traitor. And for that, you should be duly punished. Right? If you are in agreement and you are in partnership with somebody or your company has another agreement with another company and there's a breach in the contract, what do you do? Do you sit there and say, now, we should be nice to each other or do you sue the heck out of them? What's the American way? Justice first, forgiveness later. If a country now, God forbid, deceives America and there's a breach of contract between this country and another country, what does the U.S. say? Let's pray to God. No. You deal with it. The promise of Allah in the form of human treaties amongst each other and between each other, they are to be dealt with. They are questioned. And people are responsible if they do not fulfill their covenants and their treaties with each other. This is a rule of life. Which is what the whole story of Ahzab is about. That the Munafiqun and Banu Qurayla, as you will see later on, they broke this treaty and for that they had to be duly punished because that is justice and you must see it as justice and you must not see it as something that you know, there was somebody, God forbid, in the desert who was now bloodthirsty and a warmonger and he wanted revenge from everybody. The issue is not whether they were Jewish or not. The issue was what? That they broke the treaty. Yeah. Now people tell you in new textbooks about Islam and Sirah that if you write Islam and Sirah again, then you must take out the whole discussion of Banu Qurayla because it gives a false impression about Muslims and Jews. But first of all, the people who, who killed them, they were Semites. They were the Arab cousins. Right? So they're not anti-Semites, number one. Number two, that the Jews and the Arabs, they intermarried. And they had dealings with each other in Medina. So they, they weren't averse to each other's company. And they lived with each other in Medina for years if not almost, yes, yeah, centuries, you can say. And number three, that whatever the Prophet ﷺ did, he did as an act of nabuwa, not as an act of siyasa. It wasn't a political issue. It wasn't an issue of nabuwa. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, as you will see later on, that Jibreel Islam, as the Prophet ﷺ was walking back home from the battle of the ditch, 
He said, you can't go back home yet. Keep your armor on. You still have Banu Qurayla to deal with. That was through Nabuwa. It wasn't through Siyasa. It wasn't political issue. Where will you get this? You will get this from the Hadith. Now if you just stick to the Quran and say you will get this insight into the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Say, O Muhammad that running away and fleeing will not help you if you flee away from death or if you flee away from being killed. And in that case, if you do that, you will not benefit except a little meaning that if this moment you flee away from the battlefield, and you say, I'm going to protect my life, even though you have promised to help and support and defend Medina, okay, then you may live for another one day, few days, few months, few years. But eventually, you're going to die. How are you going to flee away from death? You can't do that. Meaning, the munafiq is the one who says, I don't want to die, no matter what happens. So the fear of dying is what prompts him to be treacherous and to to break all his things and to break all his promises. There is no honor in his word because he doesn't have a word. The munafiq, the hypocrite, the person who is always afraid of doing this or doing that. So here you see that Allah subhanahu wa is addressing the believers first that uh, this is a ni'mah from Allah that although there were 12,000 of them Allah subhanahu wa destroyed them through the elements, the sandstorm, and through the angels who were there, but he did not see them. Yeah. And then those who are munafiqun, they ran away from death, but some of them were now captured with the Banu Qurayla, and they were all killed uh, for reasons of treachery and going against the treaty for the people of Medina. So, if you are, in paraphrase what this surah is saying that if you are a citizen of a country and you have implicitly agreed that you will do this uh, because it's a legal responsibility, then you must honor that agreement. If you don't want to honor that agreement, then you must say so and you must do something that allows you not to honor that agreement, like leave the country, for instance. You can't have both. Right. So here, in the, if you want to give it that spin, and it's okay for the sake of helping us understand that the munafiqun, the hypocrites, that, who were dealt with by the Prophet Sallallahu uh, in the Surah of the Banu Qurayza, and those who were, who were eventually routed up by the Prophet Sallallahu later on in the campaign of the Tabuk, meaning the process announced in the Masjid later on, four years later, or this person, this person is munafiq. They must leave the masjid and they must never come back to the community and so on. So eventually they were all uh, given their due by Allah and his Rasul. The point is that when we study the seerah of the Prophet you need to understand both what the Quran is saying and both what the Hadith says. If you don't, then invariably you are going to get the story wrong. You get the story wrong. And when you get the story wrong, then you're going to bend over backwards to apologize for certain acts the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba took where they should not be in that position in the first place. You don't need to apologize for what the Prophet ﷺ did. You must believe in what he did is the truth. Now we don't stand, Allah is not going to question us on the Day of Judgment. Why didn't you apologize for the Prophet ﷺ when uh, you, you read the story of Banu Qurayza? And they were all killed. He's not going to ask you that. What is he going to ask you? He's going to ask you, did you believe what the Prophet did was the truth or not? You're going to question. If you're in that position. Right. So when you read a textbook about the seerah, make sure first that the facts, the facts are correct. From the Quran, number one. Number two, that you don't give it a spin that shows that you are apologizing. Who are we to apologize for anything the Prophet did? We don't need to apologize. 
Nor did the Prophet apologize. This, this is the, the crux of the whole surah, that a Nabi is always going to be representing Allah. And the Ummah should represent the Nabi. Not Allah. Yeah. We're kind of holy in that all the time. We represent God. No, you don't. You represent the human being, who is Muhammad sallallahu He represents God. Yeah. So now, if there's a story in the seerah, that doesn't quite gel with you. Hey, if I mention this, it's going to sound wrong. So be it. But if I present, if you present it that way, that's a distortion, which is sin. State the facts. Did he or did he not kill those people? Yes, he did. Why? Because he's a nabi. Now, how do you justify it? You justify it the way you justify any kind of political killing where there's a breach of contract and there's treason. Right? You want to give it a legal spin. I mean, that's fine. So now, when people have committed treason and they have deserted the whole community, even though they promised that they would not desert, then what do you do with them? Sometimes you jail them, imprison them for life. At the very least, they're court-martialed. At the very least. So now, if you stand there and say, well, when I mention this to my neighbor or to my friend, and then I'm going to have to apologize. Who are you to apologize for the Rasul of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? I mean, this is a mythical insecurity. It's a myth in your mind. What's going to happen? Nothing's going to happen. They don't have to believe anything you say. They don't believe in the Quran anyway. They don't believe in the Rasul anyway. So why are you apologizing for something that you don't need to apologize? Number one, number two, that if you do say that, that is a distortion, and your promise that you will be with the Prophet ﷺ in faith, you may be questioned on the Day of Judgment for breaking that promise. Your covenant with Allah is going to be questioned, as we spoke about the covenant Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took with these five great uh, anbiya and rasul. That this is the covenant. Make sure that you fulfill this covenant, that you will represent the Nabi as his representative in the best way possible without distorting the facts, without lying, without cheating, without any cover up. Nabi's life is exposed because he has wahi. Wahi means revelation, it's revealed. A Nabi doesn't conceal anything. As you will see, the major story of the surah deals with this, uh, uh, this phenomenon that the Nabi is not supposed to conceal anything he does for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa We ask Allah to forgive us our sins and to help us, inshallah, be Muslim, remain Muslim, us and our children and our grandchildren until the Day of Judgment. Ameen. Ya Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu ta'ala khayri 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 khayri